Coming up on Eating Matters, we'll be discussing the parallels between slow food and slow fashion with our guests from Manufacturer New York. Stay tuned. Today's program is brought to you by Nettle Meadow Farm Cheese and Spirits Pairing, taking place on Saturday, June 18th at Nettle Meadow Farm. For more information, visit NettleMeadowCheeseAndSpirits.com. That's N-E-T-T-L-E, MeadowCheeseAndSpirits.com. Hey, 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 I'm Jimmy Carboni from Beer Sessions Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn on Heritage Radio Network. We have talked a lot about the principles of slow food on this show, essentially by advocating, questioning, and thinking through what a good, clean, and fair food system looks like for all. Today, we're going to use the slow food lens as a tool to talk about fashion. If you tuned in last week, you heard Wen Jay Ying and I talk about the need for skill sharing in the, in the food movement. Today, we're going to be discussing skill sharing across industry lines. Our guests will help us understand what sustainability looks like in the field of fashion and how issues like sourcing and labor affect the industry throughout the supply chain. Later in the show, we'll be joined by Eric Oberholzer, founder and CEO of Tender Greens, our featured startup of the week. But before we delve into today's topic, I want to briefly discuss some of the biggest food policy stories that uh, we saw in the past week. This Monday, giant uh, German chemical company Bayer offered $62 billion, uh, offered a $62 billion bid to buy Monsanto, a leading agrochemical and biotechnology corporation. The stakes are pretty high because if successful, it will create the world's largest supplier of seeds and agricultural chemicals. Yesterday, Monsanto rejected the bid as incomplete and financially inadequate, even though, by the way, Monsanto is uh, only valued at $42 billion, but the door still remains open for Bayer to make another offer. Some of you may remember that last year, Monsanto attempted to buy the Swiss pesticide giant Syngenta, who ended up accepting an offer from Chinese chemical company ChemChina in early 2016. And of course, the Dow-DuPont merger is still being reviewed and scrutinized by U.S. officials. So the food ag sector stands to be potentially consolidated even further. Let's see what happens. Next up, uh, we're going to talk about food labels, um, nutrition labels. So last Friday, Flotus and the FDA unveiled the final updates to nutrition labels, an update we haven't seen in more than two decades. Bef- uh, both uh, released this on the same day, kind of came out with it on the same day, and it really represents how instrumental the Obama administration has been in shaping these changes and in keeping the process moving forward. The original nutrition facts label first appeared on labels or in food packages rather in 1994 and it hasn't changed much since, mostly because industry lobbying efforts uh, really kept it gridlocked. Uh, The new nutritional facts label will take effect in two years 
end will apply on billions of food packages. A key change uh, that you will see is that companies must now list how much added sugar their products contain and include a suggested limit for how much added sugar people should consume each day. Another key change uh, includes a requirement to list calories in much larger and bolder font, and serving size uh, sizes, standard serving sizes will now be updated to reflect portions that people actually eat. Um, if you haven't seen the new labels yet, be sure to check them out and tweet at us and let us know what you think. In labor news, the largest produce industry groups in the country, the Produce Marketing Association and the United Fresh Produce Association, are joining forces to promote responsible labor practices. This first attempt comes at a time when, where the good food movement is trying to bring labor into the conversation and out of the fringe. Labor groups are slightly skeptical, as they say the success of this will hinge on willingness to include certification and an enforcement process. Also, labor groups are hoping that they're going to be included in the process. The United Farm Workers, uh, which is the largest farm worker union, still hasn't been contacted by the produce companies. I also want to take a minute just to remind listeners that we had Rich Morosi on the show back in December, uh, the L.A. Times reporter behind the Pulitzer Prize-nominated investigative series Product of Mexico which detailed the labor conditions that Mexican uh, ag workers face in the production of fruits and vegetables that we see every day on our grocery stores throughout the uh, throughout the U.S. So this announcement's definitely a win for Rich. Congratulations. You called attention to these issues through a mainstream media outlet and produced a series that went viral. Today, the House Agriculture Committee dived into food waste. On May 18th, Democratic Representative Shelley Pingree from Maine and Senator Richard Blumenthal from Connecticut introduced bills that, uh, that aim to address food waste by establishing new labeling standards. The Food Recovery Act takes a multi-sector approach to reduce waste on farms, in retail, in institutions, and at home. The legislation aims to make food date labels more consistent and less confusing. The best if used by, uh, for instance, would indicate the date of the product's peak freshness and expires on would show the date that uh, the product isn't safe to consume anymore. Uh, For more on food waste and the food labeling dates, be sure to check out another one of our past episodes, this one from last fall with Dana Gunders from NRDC and Emily Broad-Lieb from the Food Law and Policy Clinic at Harvard Law. And finally, the Humane Society, which is, of course, the nation's largest animal protection organization, is expanding their Meatless Monday efforts. Meatless Monday has gained a lot of attention in recent years because of growing research that links the livestock sector as a top contributor of greenhouse gases. Since 2011, the Humane Society has successfully worked with 200 school districts to reduce meat offerings, in addition to working with hospitals, senior homes, and corporate cafeterias. Next up, they plan to target large-scale purchasers. And it isn't just the Humane Society. Government-affiliated organizations, academics, and environmental groups are all making a case that there are numerous benefits to reducing your meat intake, uh, be it for your health or for the environment. And that wraps up our news segment for today. Be sure to tweet or direct message us at Eat Matters HRN if you would like to include a particular policy update or have thoughts on the ones we discussed today. Now 
we're going to turn to the topic at hand, discussing parallels between food and fashion and the sustainability issues both are faced with. Joining me in the studio today to delve into these issues are my two guests, Patrick Duffy and Nika Rabinowitz from Manufacture New York, a manufacturing innovation hub. Patrick is a strategist and advisor with extensive experience on how businesses can and should engage in sustainability efforts. Currently at Manufacture New York, he leads the company's sustainability and manufacturing ecosystem and infrastructure strategy, as well as their sustainable business consulting services. Nika Rabinowitz is a textile artist, a natural dyer, and educator whose practice is rooted in supply chain research and a desire to revitalize local fiber farming communities. She's a founder of Sayori Arts New York City, as well as the co-founder and creative director of Artifact at Artifact Textiles. Currently, she also collaborates with Manufacturer in New York, where she helps facilitate inclusionary programming that focuses on the intersection of sustainability, technology, and making. Patrick and Nika, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Um, Patrick, let's start with you. Can you tell me about the uh, work you're doing at Manufacturer in New York City? Uh, at the moment, it primarily involves uh, planning for the facility that we'll, we'll be building um, within the next few months. Uh, we're in the same building, mm-hmm. um, and we're going to be building a, a hub, a 160,000-square-foot hub on an entire floor of a large industrial building. And the hub is, um, you could describe it as a manufacturing innovation center for apparel, textiles, and wearable tech. Mm-hmm. And we see ourselves very much operating at the nexus of fashion, sustainability, and, and technology. Um, and oh. we're, we're trying to very uh, deliberately bring all those elements together. Mm-hmm. And how do you two work together? Well, in the education department, which I help run, we do a lot of classes that focus on sustainability and different events and panels. And we're always pulling Patrick in to kind of get his feedback and his thoughts and make sure it kind of ties into the whole message of manufacturing work. Okay, great. So to making sure it's cohesive and Mm -hmm. um, wonderful. So, okay, so sustainability. This means a lot of things to different people, right? And a little bit of nothing. And a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm curious, Patrick. um, I mean, actually, I'll give this to both of you, but Patrick, in your work and then at Manufacturer New York and then more broadly in the fashion world, how is this term defined? Does it include things like labor practices or are you more focused on the environmental aspect? Yeah. So it it, it includes a, a a broad spectrum. And actually, the way I think of it, um, the thing that I try to add for mm-hmm. emphasis is public health, okay. which filters down to worker health and worker performance. Mm-hmm. So it's environment, um, social equity, yeah. community, and, uh, and public health uh, or personal health. And uh, I think that's particularly important in a sector like uh, fashion and apparel that's largely still labor-intensive. Uh, the workers are like athletes, uh, so ergonomics matters. Their relationship, their physical interaction with machines mm-hmm. uh, matters greatly to their health and the quality of the goods they produce. So it's important to focus on that, uh, both for its own sake, but also for the viability of, of their businesses. If you want better quality, better outcomes, right. your workers should be happy and healthy. Is that your is that your philosophy at Manufacturer New York, or would you say that is that can be extrapolated to the industry as a whole in terms of how they look at sustainability? <laughs> uh, I, I, it's, our, it's our philosophy at Manufacturing New York. I can't speak for the entire sector. I, I, I think for, I mean, if I had to, to venture an opinion. You're like, silly question. <laughs> I, I would, I, yeah, I would say that, frankly, the majority of companies out there don't think about that. Right. They think about labor conditions in a minimal sense. 
and they ask the question, are we meeting basic standards, basic safety standards, environmental standards in factories, and are we paying our workers enough? And that that's not even always true. Right. In fact, in the fashion world, it's mostly not true. Mostly not true. Um, so we're trying to we're trying to hit that threshold and go a step beyond. And for everybody who's coming into our our hub over the next two years, we want to make uh, worker health and performance a a central piece of our sustainability strategy. Anything to add to that, Nika? Yeah, well, when you're thinking about sustainability, we at Artifact and in the education department and in Manufacture New York think about, yes, the people, but also the plants and animals involved in the process. And I think that really connects it to the slow food movement Mm -hmm. because both food and clothing usually comes from the farm. It's either coming from the farm or it's coming from plastics. And we're really interested in looking at how we can have a connection between the farm and the final product in every step in that supply chain because we bring every step under one roof. It's that entire ecosystem. We're having the designers next to the factories, next to the manufacturers of kind of all the components of the garments. At Manufacture New York. Uh, in yeah. Manufacture yeah. Th- That's right, plus researchers and technologists that are coming more from the fashion tech and wearable tech side wow. and sort of blending with traditional apparel and fashion. Completely. And when you put the technologist next to someone that's interested in sustainability, mm-hmm. you get conversations that never would be had in a but not in a hub like yeah. New York. That's oh, that's very interesting. Um, what are some of the top line sustainability issues that affect the industry throughout the supply chain? Nika, do you want to kick us off on this one? Well, some of the major issues we're facing are, well, it's kind of in every aspect where it's the planet, plants, and animals. So we're having issues with labor in mm-hmm. every step of the process. I was recently talking to someone about all the steps in a pair of jeans, and we came up with, I think it was 27 steps and 27 hands that touch these pair of jeans wow. in different capacities. You have the miners who are dealing with the buttons, you have the thread, you have the textile of the gene, you have the person assembling it. There's so many steps that we don't think about. Mm-hmm. The supply chain is so vast. Yeah, the dyeing process. The, oh, the dyeing process, of Just, course. Uh-huh. And that's com- and unfortunately, in every step of the process, there's labor issues and issues with the chemicals being used and how it affects the planet and how it affects the people that are interacting with it on a day-to-day basis. So labor issues from an environmental health perspective and a fair wage perspective, I'm assuming? It's all kind of connected, and that's why it's so important to think about it in this holistic and open-ended way. Right. Yeah. Um, Patrick, do you uh, any any other kind of issues? I mean, I feel well, like well, planet, plants, animals yeah. cut, runs the gamut, right? <laughs> that's, but. that's fairly comprehensive. Thanks, Nika. Uh, well, th- there's, almost, there's almost too many to talk about. I mean, we, we could spend... 48 hours talking nonstop about... Right. We've got, ju- we've got 45 minutes. 45 minutes, yeah. 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 Ju- just, <laughs> just about the environmental side uh-huh. or the labor side or the, the social community side. Right. And as Nika said, there's in, in every... In the, like, for example, just with garments and, and, you know, when you go from, like, growing the raw materials or, you know, shaving wool off of a sheep, yeah. uh, whatever, whatever your raw material input is for a textile, you go from that to processing it to shipping it into a factory and then assembling goods and then distributing there there are so many um, environmental and labor challenges along the way mm-hmm. but if you want to go for some really top line issues water consumption is a huge issue issue for fashion and apparel and textiles mm-hmm. just to give you a couple of stats uh, the apparel and fashion industry globally I think actually includes textiles mm-hmm. um, is uh, responsible for 20% of the world's industrial water consumption and pollution 20, 20% 20% which is enormous yeah. it's also the second largest polluting industry just as a whole um, in, in the world it's second after energy yeah. and which shocks a lot of people yeah. and one other fun stat um, 
the, there was an estimate um, that came out of MIT that said that the projected production of garments, not textiles, just garments alone, mm -hmm. globally, for 2015, if you laid it all flat, would cover California. So that's, wow. that's, that's a that's lot of And that's not volume. even counting what people are throwing away. So we're talking about the production of garments, but we have to think about the entire... When you think about the supply chain, you think about the whole cycle of a garment wow. or the whole cycle of a textile. And what's crazy, like adding on to these stats, is that, six, that in the average American home, 64 pounds of textile waste is thrown away each year. Wow. And that is kind of unimaginable when thinking about all of the toxins in the dyes, thinking about all the toxins in the uh, in the textile and the raw materials, and that's getting thrown into a landfill or getting passed off to third world countries that are kind of losing their own opportunity to have growth in their own like local communities in this space. Yeah. So it's kind of a huge problem when we're producing so much and we're also throwing away so much and we're not thinking about how can we keep the clothing we have and just buy what we absolutely need. And if we're thinking about what we absolutely need, we don't really need any more clothing. Right. Yeah, that, I mean, I might push back if you've seen my if you've seen my closet, but I'm probably your number one offender, to be totally honest. Uh, so we'll we'll talk about that later, though. <laughs> so that, those were that's a tremendous amount of information that I feel like um, I did not know before, um, and I'm still a little bit shocked by, especially uh, you know in terms of the water consumption. Yeah, well, I mean, th <laughs> think about that one. Th think about cotton. I mean, cotton is one of the most water-intensive crops in the in the world. I mean, it's it, across the entire agriculture spe agricultural mm -hmm. spectrum. Cotton is one of not the most, but it's one of the most water-intensive crops there is, mm -hmm. and there's so much um, there's so much global demand and so much downward pressure on pricing. Uh, that cotton crops keep expanding sort of globally and more and more into places that really, where the climate, the soils, the, the available water tables are not ideally suited to produce cotton. Why is that, though? Where is that pressure coming from? Is it from, you know, subsidies at the, at the federal level? Or what would you say could be a major reason behind that? Well, I mean, that's, that's, that's complicated. I, th I think you could make an argument that uh, for example, fast fashion, just which which triggers demand for an enormous quantity, enormous throughput mm -hmm. of of fibers, mm -hmm. um, and to keep the price points low, it, it puts a lot of downward pressure. Th you know, it, it ripples through through the supply chain all the way down to the cotton farmers, for example. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you're talking about communities that you know, in a lot of developing countries, very poor countries that are you know kind of clamoring for economic development opportunities, agriculture is a traditional option in many cases. And if they can connect to that market and grow crops, um, it's it's a money making opportunity. But because of the downward pressure and the, the pressure for turnaround and yield, uh, in most cases they're not employing the most sustainable practices, uh, and it's you really can't fault them in most cases unless they have technical assistance to do so. Um, Nika, so in in thinking about the slow fashion movement, like slow the slow food movement, can you give us an example, um, but like uh, an issue where the there these two are parallel? Yeah, well, I, when I work with um, brands or work with fashion, I'm constantly connecting food and fashion because I work with natural dyes, so a lot of times we use food waste for dye stuff. Really? So what's really interesting is I've worked with Grow NYC Green Market in the city and a lot of different um, farmers markets around the area, and people are not realizing that they can use their food waste, their onion skins, their carrot tops, their red cabbage for dye stuff and that's a really exciting opportunity for people yeah that's that's mm -hmm. I, I would have never i would 
how does that happen? <laughs> how does that happen? <laughs> well, that's, I mean, that, that's, that's a case where, um, just to give you one example, the type of thing that we'll do on, on site, uh, I mean, it may be challenging somewhat in our center with food, but that's an industrial ecology, uh, kind of cross-sector industrial ecology opportunity between food and fashion. Right. So if, you can, if we can do a better job of capturing composting. food waste, first of all, minimizing food waste, and then capturing, composting what we, you know, what we can, yep. a lot of that can be repurposed over yeah. to the fashion side. And if you're using natural dyes, you can compost your clothing, too. You can compost your cotton clothing. And imagine a completely closed-loop system where you have your dye garden, and you're growing your dye stuff, or you're growing your cotton or your hemp or whatever you're using for your fiber and then you make it into or assemble it into a garment and then when you're done with the garment you just compost it and put that right back into your soil for your dye garden and that's a completely amazing that is a closed loop if i've ever (laughs) if i've ever heard one and it's completely doable yeah yeah yeah. and uh, jenna just to get back to one just one other statistic you you asked you asked about what are the major challenges to the global uh, apparel and fashion sectors uh well just textile waste is huge uh and just in new york alone um, the estimated annual production of waste uh, post-production pre-consumer is two set note between 600 and 700,000 tons of waste. Most of it's going to landfill. Some of it's being captured and repurposed, wow. but only a fraction. Yeah. And then on the on the post-consumer side, it's estimated to be around 200,000 tons per year. So it's it's just a gigantic problem. So think about so that's just New York City. There's not a ton of manufacturing here. I didn't realize there there isn't. Uh, yeah, that, I mean, that makes there's sense. There's some. some. There's a traditional base, but it's not like China or Bangladesh or Sri right. Lanka for for apparel. I guess I didn't realize, and this is this is a complete oversight, but how much goes in? You know, how much waste there is at the during the actual production phase. I mm-hmm. think a lot of waste happening you know, after the fact, like once the consumer has purchased and, and worn a, an item. And, and that's a big problem. But even on the production side, it's yeah. huge. Just like even like product development uh, rooms, not even like full scale manufacturing, because you know, most most of the manufacturing occurs in Southeast Asia or East Asia still. But even for the major U.S. brands or you know mid sized designers that are operating and doing some manufacturing and product development in New York, they still produce significant amounts of textile. Think about waste. the cutting room floor. You think about it yeah. when you cut out a pattern. There's all these extra scraps, and that usually just gets yeah. thrown away. I mean, there's some great designers in our facility, like Daniel Silverstein, doing stuff to. To use those scraps um, at Artifact Textiles. We are f- using those scraps to fill pillows that were naturally yeah. dying. So there's ways to capture this waste and think about it as an affordable raw material. But unfortunately, that's not something that's happening on the global fashion scale. Yeah, definitely, definitely not. Um, are there any brands, Patrick? You know, who, who are like the major uh, players in the fashion space that are leading in terms of sustainability, and are they ha- even having an effect on the market? Uh, yeah, I mean Patagonia. <laughs> Everybody yes, talks yeah. about Patagonia, but but they, but I mean they've got to be considered one of the leaders in the market. They are influencing people. They have mm-hmm. a loyal customer base. Mm-hmm. I think that they've kept some of their customers and they've grown their customer base uh, to some degree because of their commitment to uh, a strong um, corporate culture mm-hmm. uh, and sustainable practices. They're not perfect. But they're definitely one of the leaders. Yep. Uh, I think Eileen Fisher is pretty good. Um, mm-hmm. There are. I mean, t- to be to be. Uh, to be honest, um, it's more recent, but uh, Nike and Adidas are now doing some super innovative things with, with their materials. With their materials, yeah, process innovation. What about their materials. labor? Quick, quick to qualify. <laughs> well, yeah, I, was, I feel like Nike had a real issue with, uh, you know, maybe 
labor well, issues. Yeah, they I mean, well they they took a lot of heat. Ago. They took yeah. a lot of deserved heat in the late nineties, early two thousands for their labor. Yeah, uh, and that's still a challenge. But they have um, adopted a lot of uh, sustainable, like like using sustainability as an innovation driver. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have an enormous footprint, and mm-hmm. one of the reasons they're doing it is because they are a global company that re- re- relies heavily on natural resources and synthetics. Right. And they realize that over the long term, that's a threat to their business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's an existential threat to those large-scale businesses. So they have to become more innovative. They have to be more conserving, and they have to begin to use some of the, um, the, the materials that they're, that they're producing as waste currently or recapturing otherwise uh, considered waste materials. Okay. All right. We're going to take a quick commercial break to hear a word from our sponsors. But when we get back, we're going to dig a little bit deeper into the sustainability policies and regulations affecting the fashion industry. Nettle Meadow Farm Cheese and Spirits Pairing is a celebration of good food and beverages in the newly restored barn loft event venue at Nettle Meadow Farm in Thurman, New York. On Saturday, June 18th, come sample and savor, then buy your favorite cheeses and beverages to take home. Nettle Meadow cheeses have been praised highly in national media and have won prestigious awards from the American Cheese Society. Taste samples of goat and sheep cheeses paired with an array of local regional wines, beers, and ciders. You'll never forget your first sample of rich, creamy Kunick, Nettle Meadow's trademark cheese. In Esquire, our very own Ann Saxelby said, Kunick, it may very well be the sexiest cheese in the USA. Nettle Meadow Farm is a goat and sheep dairy and cheese company in Thurman, New York, just below Crane Mountain in the Adirondacks between Gore Mountain, North Creek, and Warrensburg. It's owned and operated by Lorraine Limbiase and Sheila Flanagan. Both have a great love of animals, artisan cheese, and the unique challenges of farm life. Nettle Meadow Farm was originally founded in 1990, and it's the home of over 300 goats, dozens of sheep, and a variety of farm sanctuary animals. Again, the Cheese and Spirits pairing is Saturday, June 18th. For more information and tickets, visit NettleMeadowCheeseAndSpirits.com. That's N-E-T-T-L-E, MeadowCheeseAndSpirits.com. We're back on Eating Matters, where today we're speaking with Patrick Duffy and Nika Rabinowitz from Manufacturer New York about the parallels between the slow food and fashion movements. Uh, okay, so now we're going to talk about like my favorite topic, which is government regulation. Um, <laughs> how are sustainability issues approached in the fashion industry from a government regulation standpoint? Um, is there a lot of regulation or is it mostly self-regulated by the industry? It's it's mostly self-regulated uh, and not very well self, self-regulated. Ugh. There's not a lot coming from the federal level or the state level. There may be some local programs from the country yeah. um, that encourage certain standards. But to my to my knowledge, uh, and I should know this, I don't see a lot coming from the federal government. There are some some legal restrictions around what you can say and what you can say in terms of like green marketing. Oh, okay. But that that's that sort of applies to Mm -hmm. to all industries. And I don't know how strictly that's enforced. So most of the standards in the fashion and apparel world are driven by third parties, third party certification organizations and like coalitions like the Sustainable Apparel Coalition, the SAC, 
Um, there's GOT, there's the, the Better Cotton Initiative, there's Fair Trade, uh, there's Detox, uh, Blue Sign. And what, what do these, are, is this, are, they, are these mainly getting at uh, like labor practices or, you know, you mentioned Fair Trade, right? So. Yeah, with fair trade, it's really interesting because they're third party, so you have to pay for these fair trade certifications. Mm-hmm. And a lot of small farms that are really fair trade don't have the opportunity to apply. And they're also there's not much regulation within these fair trade certification programs, so they don't have the capacity to really check up on all of these farms and all of these labor um, cooperatives. So they're, it's really hard to say that a fair trade product is actually fair trade, similar to with coffee or with chocolate. The other food, yeah, food mm-hmm. items, yeah. It's, it's challenging. The, the, the other challenge uh, that has to be emphasized all the time with the global supply chain in fashion is the opaqueness of the supply chain. I mean, so even if a large uh, European or American um, brand mm-hmm. has robust procurement standards, mm-hmm. if, they, if, they, if they, you know, require... Uh, good factory labor environmental standards from their like contract manufacturing suppliers in China or Bangladesh or wherever um, those factories have subcontractors okay. and so you go through layer upon layer of subcontractors so it's very difficult to trace the quality and the standards of everything through the entire supply chain and to guarantee that it's it's legit yeah, you can't even trace. You can trace the cotton back to the gin, but you can't even trace it in most clothing back to the actual farm it's from. No matter how much research you do or how hard you try, wow. because it's so non-transparent, and there's no regulation requiring these companies to be transparent. And, and is that mostly because uh, we're assuming that these materials are coming from abroad because it's not localized? Well, with the non-local products, yes. That's why Manufacture New York is working so hard to localize the process. When you localize the process, it's easier to make it transparent. So we're not just talking about the assembling of clothes at Manufacture New York, but we're thinking about the entire supply chain. How can you lessen the amount of hands touching a garment? How can you ensure you know whose hands are touching the garment? So mm-hmm. that way, from farm to fabric to final garment, you have a completely sustainable or ethical product. And is this part of the work that you're doing, uh, Nika, at Artifact? Yes. Yeah, so at Artifact Textiles, we connect designers in the city and in Manufacture New York's hub to farmers in the Hudson Valley and all around New York so you can have an actually local textile, made in New York textile for your right. made in New York garment. Uh, this may be a silly question mm-hmm. for somebody not in the fa- fashion industry, but what is the textile that you're sourcing from New York? So mostly what we work with is wool. Okay. There's a lot of local fiber farmers, that's goats, angora rabbits, of tons of different, about 60 different breeds of sheep. We're mm-hmm. talking about alpacas. Oh. So there's a wide range of different fibers you can get in this area. And a lot of the wool being sourced now by bigger companies is coming from Australia or New Zealand. And there's a lot of labor issues in those areas and a lot of really unethical treatment of the animals. So we're working with small farms that, when work together, can have a large quantity of wool that can really fuel the fashion industry in an ethical, local, and sustainable way. Um, okay, so Patrick, this next one is for you. Um, I One of the criticisms that we in the food world have heard about the good food movement is that it's not necessarily accessible to everyone for a number of factors, including price, accessibility, time, convenience, you know, good food, uh, which 
and by that I mean food that really reflects the uh, true cost of responsible production can cost more. And it's not necessarily readily available in every neighborhood. And then if you get past those barriers, it can also, it takes time to prepare, right? You need the foresight. So I'm wondering if there are similar barriers in the fashion industry with regard to uh, clothes that are produced in a responsible way. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of parallels. I mean, uh, I mean, even at Manufacturing York, um, the way we're setting up the hub and, and the model that we think we can most readily support, at least in the early stages, is going to be um, garments at the sort of mid-market uh, upper end, the luxury end. And, and uh, just an example of what, what does that really mean? In, what is luxury, right? What, what kind of price point is that? Um, actually, uh, Nika, do you want to take Pretty high. It's pretty, pretty high. Pretty high yeah. It's pretty hard to make a product in a completely sustainable way that's going to be any less than a fifty to a hundred dollars for like yeah, a sweater. That's right. Yeah, for a sweater, and that's the lowest I can think of possibly. Yeah, you, know, could, you have to pay everyone fairly in the right. process. It's just your mar- adding your margins to go to retail. Even if you're trying to do direct sales, it's really hard on the designer to create a sustainable product that they feel a customer will buy. That, that's true, and but it can be done. We have people in our space that are doing it already. And uh, the other thing to think about as a, just as a buyer, as a consumer, is that, well, you can go into an H&M or a Zara and you can say, well, I want to buy, I want to spend you know, $30 on, I don't know, a, a T-shirt and maybe a pair of slacks or yeah. maybe one dress shirt. But how, how many times can you wear that stuff and how, how good is it? How long will it last? How versatile is it? Um, we have local designers and brands um, that are building garments that are that have better materials, better construction, more durability. Mm-hmm. So if you think about it in a longer cost-benefit sense, you may pay a little bit more up front, but you get much more value over time right. with that garment. It's much much more lasting. So over two years, it's it may end up being cheaper right. or three years. Yeah. And the other thing, too, just one example of something that that some of the designers that we're seeing hub and that you see throughout New York that are really creative that use a sort of design approach to sustainability mm-hmm. is it's not only the quality of the materials and the construction but it's the the aesthetic and the versati- the versatility of the uh, of the aesthetic and the changeability of the garments uh, we've seen people that can where you know you can you can turn the shirt or the dress or the skirt inside out you can do different combinations of the same materials yeah. to get five or six different looks huh. and so it's like buying five or six different garments right. uh, but it's one. And and that's if you that has a sustainability benefit. It's it just reduces the consumption. You're you're purchasing one instead of five. I mean, it's mm-hmm. that simple. Um, okay, so I could keep talking to you guys about this for another forty eight days or however what was that? whatever uh, forty hours hours days whatever. Okay, <laughs> but um, I one final question before we have to wrap up. And um, you know, similar to what you were talking about, right? Kind of advice for consumers how to sort of navigate these waters and and make um, choiceful decisions in terms of the, the clothing that they purchase. So, any any words of wisdom, Nika, for for our listeners? Yeah, there's a great web site you can go to called projectjust.com and they also have an app project just and you can type in any brand so if it's from patagonia who will have a great rate to maybe an h&m who will have a terrible rate yeah and you can type it in and they'll tell you all about their practices and give them a rating and that's a really great way for any consumer to know what they should be demanding right so if it's, it seems like uh consume less higher quality mm-hmm. durable goods and um any advice on local? How do we find? How do we find besides supporting uh, the designers coming out of manufacture New York? How do we look for more localized uh, fabrics and materials? 
I mean, in addition to manufacturing, go to the other incubators in New York, um, and there are other there are other platforms for for mm-hmm. local designers and brands. And get um, involved yourself. Do it DIY. Learn about this. Become <laughs> join the movement. We're yes. always looking for more people to get inspired yeah. and join us. Yeah, follow us on social media, and you'll get you'll get you'll you'll get information about local designers. Uh-huh. And I just want to say. Uh, um, one thing just about regulation. Yeah, yeah. Um, the federal government does certify cotton. So th- there is certified organic cotton. So okay. that, that's federal. So I forgot about that earlier. Yeah. Uh, but if you're somebody who's concerned about sustainable food or the sustainability of the food supply chain, you absolutely should care about sustainable fashion um, because they're they're so interrelated. They're using largely the same resources. Yeah. So uh, if, you're, if you care about one, you really should care about the other. And if you're trying to make an informed choice, what Nika said is exactly right. Uh, a couple practical pieces that you could use, though, is look for labels, look for certifications. Okay. Um, see if the brand has a sustainability report. And if they have a sustainability report, do they back it up with, with labels like Detox or Better Cotton or Fair Trade or Organic? Mm-hmm. Uh, look for those, those labels. The more certifications and labels on environment and labor, the better. Okay. Usually. All Almost right. always. All right, great. Well, we're going to leave it there for discussion on food and fashion. For more on Manufacture New York, be sure to check out ManufactureNY.org. And for Artifact, go to ArtifactTextiles.com. Patrick and Nika, thank you so much for joining me in the studio today. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for getting into it with us. (laughs) (laughs) That's right, guys. You know what that means. <laughs> okay. It's time for our new segment, the Startup of the Week, where we feature an innovative and exciting new food organization uh, or company at the end of each episode. And with that, I am pleased to introduce Eric Oberholzer, founder and CEO of the fine casual restaurant Tender Greens that has over 20 locations throughout California serving farm-to-fork cuisine. Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. Happy to have you. Um, can you let's start? Can you tell us a little bit about what motivated you to start Tender Greens? Uh, sure. Uh, you know, in the early part of my career, I worked in in uh, fine dining and up in San Francisco, and really fed the uh, the needs of the one percent, but wasn't part of that group. And when I moved to Los Angeles, I I really found a, a fast food culture down here. And mm-hmm. Tender Greens was uh, meant to bridge the gap between uh, the luxury world that I had worked in for so many years and, and the fast food world that uh, I didn't respond to but could afford. Yeah. Uh, so, so Tender Greens was a reaction to that. Um, so I've heard of the term fast casual, obviously, which is now used to describe a lot of different restaurant uh, chains. But fine casual is new to me. Uh, what does this term mean, and how does it? You know, can you can you describe the experience that uh, a customer gets at Tender Green? Yeah. So the the, the casual side of that is uh, it's counter service. It's uh, relatively fast if you need to uh, accommodate a very busy, hectic life. But the fine of fine casual really refers to the fine dining point of view. The fine food perspective uh, that we all come from. Every one of my restaurants uh, has a fine dining chef um, running wow. it. Yeah. Well, that's that's amazing. So there's an executive chef in each kitchen? 
Yeah, all, all of these guys have come out of uh, either luxury hotels like the Four Seasons or Ritz-Carlton or, um, you know, well-known restaurants like Patina and Spago and um, and others, and they've all come out of those restaurants, uh, you know, as, as chefs de cuisines or executive chefs, and and that's what really differentiates us from from a lot of other brands out there. Now, I've read that your um, menu changes uh, d- daily in some cases. Is, is that true? And how, how do you um, – that, that sounds decentralized. How do you sort of manage that at the sure. corporate level? Yeah, so our core menu stays relatively the same. You know, it'll, it'll fluctuate with the seasons and, and product availability. But uh, twice a day, every restaurant uh, runs um, – a, a menu of specials, and that is driven by the chef's point of view at, at the store level, um, what's happening in the fields um, and what the farmers are bringing to us. It might be the weather that day if it's if it's cloudy, which rarely happens in California where we are, mm-hmm. um, if hot or cold, uh, the mood of the chef. And, and they write that menu daily uh, independent of any other restaurant or certainly um, – any any influence above the restaurant, so they they have total autonomy to uh, to drive the creative uh, energy of, of the daily menu. That must be a big selling point for uh, chefs <laughs> coming in to your uh, restaurant group. That sounds very exciting. Um, okay, so I have a question about um, sort of sourcing. So you have more of a meat-heavy uh, menu than some of the other fast casual restaurants, yet your prices are incredibly reasonable. Um, and you know, in one case, I saw I was looking through the one of the menus. It said you know like salad, and then fifty cents more for a protein-like steak. Uh, how do you manage this from the cost side? So. Uh, you know, we we are. Um, it's interesting with a, with a name like Tender Grains, people often assume that we're a salad place, a vegetarian place, or a, a marijuana dispensary. <laughs> um, and you know, we we are some of that, but uh, our, our our biggest seller is our, our our backyard steak, which is a grilled rare or rare um, you know uh, flank steak, uh, and. The you know the way we get around uh, the cost is uh, we buy the best possible uh, ingredients, but we don't we don't um, do so much of it. So it might be a four or five ounce portion versus you know the the mammoth ten ounce or twelve ounce. So it's the right amount of the right kind of uh, animal protein cooked uh, really well with a with a chef's hand, um, and then you know it serves more as a, an accessory to an otherwise really well-balanced, plant-focused uh, uh, entree. Oh, it's great. So it's uh, protein kind of moving to the side of the plate as opposed to being the main feature, it That's sounds right. like. How have you managed your sustain- sustainability commitments? Because um, m- my understanding is you have quite a few of them, and it seems like a big, um, you know, something that's core to the brand is uh, fresh, local, regional foods. Um, so I'm wondering how you've managed these commitments from a sustainability perspective since you guys have scaled because you have, what, now over 20 locations? Yeah, we have 22 locations. Uh, we've grown over a decade. And, you know, with the very first restaurant, we we, we 
we uh, we leveraged our existing relationships because we were chefs um, prior to opening Tender Green. So we had we had rich, um, deep re- relationships with a lot of uh, small local organic farmers uh, in Southern California and Northern California. And um, in in the case of Scarborough, they 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 were an early equity partner. So it was true partnership um, that we formed. And and over the years, we've continued to uh, to view our farmers and artisans as partners in some cases providing uh, working capital for them mm-hmm. uh, so, and then they would pay us back in in, in the products that they they grew or, or, or raised and you know in some cases as we grew we grew out of some of the specialty farmers they couldn't keep up with us uh, so then they were um, they became more of a specialty provider for the specials versus the, the core menu. Mm-hmm. Uh, while um, others uh, like uh, Mary's Chicken have grown with us, um, partly because they've, they've scaled with Whole Foods as well as us, and they've become very sophisticated. So in, in, in some cases, uh, our growth has uh, benefited the growth of uh, our farmers who are able to, to scale up with us. And others, uh, we continue to support them uh, just on on the scale that they can they can handle. Yeah, um, what would you say for all of our kind of budding restaurateurs or um, aspiring restaurateurs out there? What um, has been, let's say, your biggest obstacle since you first opened, the, you know, your very first location, and how did you work to overcome it? Uh, you know, I, that's a good question. I mean, there were a lot of obstacles in any business, and, and certainly in the restaurant it, industry. Industry, you know. <laughs> you know. Uh, I would say that the biggest challenge uh, is always um, people. You need to you need to to get the right team uh, on the field uh, and and nurture them and grow them. And um, I think any everybody has to be very careful not to get ahead of their skis and. Uh, grow faster than they can grow their culture or their people, um, and that's a that's a big mistake a lot of folks make, particularly now when there's so much money, uh, you know, sort of being invested in in, in this space. Uh, some are pressured to grow uh, too fast. Yeah, that's definitely. Um, I, I've heard and seen that a lot, especially if people who get um, you know certain kinds of say uh, investments uh, from other industries that maybe. Are not as applicable, or, or, or you know, can't grow as fast as um, as uh, in the food industry. Okay, last question, the most important question for all of us non-California residents: uh, Any plans to expand outside of the state? Uh, hopefully, to the East Coast, New York City area. <laughs> when can we get Tender Greens here? <laughs> well, as you, as you may know, uh, we partnered with uh, Union Square Hospitality Group last year. Uh, Danny Meyer is on our board, and one of uh, one of the things he said uh, was, you know, this uh, this has been a lot of work and a big check to write uh, just to get Tender Greens close to my office. So <laughs> we, we are we are certainly motivated to. Um, uh, to penetrate the New York market, uh, Manhattan in particular, uh, we don't have anything uh, set yet. Uh, we're certainly looking, and uh, and you know I'm I'm from Pennsylvania, so it, it would be like coming back home. Uh, I think the East Coast um, uh, will respond really really well to what we have uh, have to offer. And, Absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm I'm excited to work with uh, the products and some of the unique. 
um, conditions uh, on the East Coast will we'll cook slightly differently. Yeah. Same philosophy, but we'll, we'll adapt our menu to, to the climate and to the taste of the East Coast. Oh, great. Well, um, Danny and I eagerly await your arrival. <laughs> All right. We're trying. Yeah, okay, great. Um, with that, I'm going to wrap it up today. Uh, thank you so much, Eric, for coming on the show. And for more information about the company, especially if you live in the California area, go to tendergreens.com. I appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. Thank you so much to my three guests today, Patrick Duffy, Nika Rabinowitz, and Eric Oberholzer for coming on the show and for our sponsors for your generous support. Our show is produced with the help from the brilliant Taylor Lanzett and Austin Brunierski. Show music is by Tim Archer, and our engineer is David Tedashore. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe. Like, share, follow, and post to us on Facebook, and be sure to find us on Twitter at Eat Matters HRN. I'm Jenna Liute, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.